Thank you very much. <laughs> Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh. Such a provocative verse. This notion that, that somehow Moses, when he spoke to Pharaoh, it was like God speaking to him. And the reason I think it's provocative is because I think it, it suggests the same thing for us as the people of God today, that we are the body of Christ, as we're called, that in some ways we should think about the fact that when we speak in the world, when we engage in our lives, that we are like God to people. Uh, the truth is, every, some of, some, the most that some will ever see of God is in you and me before eternity. They're not oriented to faith or they don't think much about God. And so we're their shot at encountering the voice of God in their lives. Every person of faith in some sense is speaking for God. And the question that we're sort of trying to, or I've been trying to think through in this series is just simply, are we being faithful to that? Are we speaking for God faithfully? Um, uh, This notion of the fact that our lives actually matter, that that which begs the question, how then shall we live? That we're to be a kind of, I think the term we used was prophetic people. Prophetic, somebody speaking prophecy or prophetically in biblical thinking is not that we're predicting the future. It's that somehow that our words are filled with something more than just words. Like a sail, when it goes, when the sailboat is going forward, it's being, the sail isn't really pushing it. It catches wind and the wind pushes the sail. That somehow our words have something behind them more than just words there's something in them that God is somehow present in them. And, and that as we go into the world speaking for God, people are actually encountering God. Last time we talked about the idea of being a prophetic people who speak for God. We said that this would mean that we would need to be a people who handled truth accurately, not meanly, but lovingly. That we would be a people of faith, that we would really literally trust in a person that we've never seen and live out our lives in that way. And that we would be a people of love that we would learn to set value and preciousness on the people that we encounter, that we walk into a room thinking or walk into a relationship or, or a face-to-face encounter with somebody thinking, there you are, instead of here I am, right, kind of thing, that we're celebrating and making life about the other instead of ourselves. Today, I want to focus on the notion of being a holy people, that for us to be, uh, that how we should live is as a holy people. And the text for this is First Peter 1, and Peter says, but just as he who called you is holy, God is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, be holy, God says, because I am holy. Now before we try to unpack what this holiness is and in this sense, in the biblical sense, let's, let's talk for just a minute about what it is not, all right? Uh, the holiness described in Scripture is not participating in overly simplified external truths or rules that people do. Holiness is not about never having a beer, nor is it about refusing to celebrate Halloween, I grew up in a community in Wisconsin where they, the Christians refused to celebrate Halloween. I just didn't understand it. I would tell people, listen, I mean, I get that you don't like the costumes that much, but hey, how does knocking on doors randomly and getting free candy be anything? Can that be the devil? It can't possibly be the devil. It's got to be the Lord. 
or refusing to go to R-rated movies or thinking that it's about holiness is about clothing or hairstyle or having or not having tattoos or, you know, that kind of thing. Nor is it even about the whole religious things that we do, whether you bow or lift your hands and sing loudly or, you know, all of those kind of things. Those things don't make you holy. They might be something a holy person does, but it doesn't make you holy. Neither is holiness about voting Republican or Democrat. Holy people may or may not do these things, but it's not rooted. Holiness is not rooting, rooted in doings. It's rooted in being a kind of person that does certain things, but it's being the kind of person. The word holy actually means to be different, to be other. God is holy, which means he's different than we would have anticipated. He's, he's uh, unexpectedly have certain attitudes and approaches that we wouldn't have guessed he would have, that he's sort of surprising and on some level mysterious. We don't know why he's like that. Why would he choose to set value and preciousness on us when we act so bad? Why would he continue to pursue us when, we don't want, when we're actually running away from him? These kinds of things. It makes him other. Holy living, both in God and in our lives, creates questions because, precisely because we're surprised by it. There's a text in 1 Peter that talks about how we are to impact the world around us, and it mentions this notion of living in a way that creates questions. I think that's holy living. In fact, this is the same, uh, Peter is the one that's writing this in this same context of holiness. He says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. He's really connecting the idea that our ministry to the world around us is a response to the questions our lives create. But he says, do this with gentleness and respect. Even though he's around pagan people, saying you're living around people that don't respect God, even if they're attacking you slanderously, when they ask you about what's going on, treat them with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I think one of the greatest tests of whether or not you're living a holy life is not by the external things you do, but by whether or not your life causes surprise or wonder or question. I mean, where people ask you, why, why are you like the way that you are? I mean, you seem to work harder than you're being paid to work. <laughs> you seem to be able to forgive people when all of us want to hold grudges against them. You seem to be able to give people another chance when it doesn't make any sense that you would do that. They start asking us questions about the way that we are, and we respond to that with humbleness, with gentleness, the reality of our lives being different or holy. Now, let me, let me tell you a story that was very formative in my life as a, a minister. Um, I've always been really interested in people's conversions. From the time I first came to Christ, I mean, I was a talker to people about God. I used to stand on the streets in our hometown and pass out these, they were called truth papers back in the day, and they were papers that were kind of, um, they kind of pretended like the rapture happened or Jesus had come, and it was like, Christ has returned was on the front of the paper, and it was talking about end times, and I used to talk, I mean, we were in a tiny town of 1,800 people. 
And we used to be out on the streets. There's about 20 of us that would be out on the streets all the time, in our high schools, all the time, preaching to people. I was a talker to people about God. Um, and, and, and there were times even that I would get so full of compassion about people that weren't, uh, had an, that I didn't know had an encounter with Christ. That I literally, this is the truth. I would sometimes stop cars in the middle of the road. <laughs> I'd walk out. I'm like a 14-year-old kid, right? I'm stop. Wait, stop. You know, like, the bridge is out, you know, kind of thing. I'd say, are you, is your life, are you right with Christ? And oh, my gosh, people did not like me. But it was in my blood, man. I wanted to talk to people about God. I wanted to talk to people about their lives. I thought eternity mattered. It was just deeply rooted in my soul. After we went to Bible school, we are, uh, the first church that Gil and I were involved with in pastoral care was in Marshfield, Wisconsin town of about 18,000 people, and uh, we got there in June of 1980, and I'm telling you what, my goal was to win the world to Christ by the weekend, so we were constantly pressing, we need to have prayer meetings, and we need to organize people to get in, uh, out on the streets and to preach the gospel, and we went door to door, and I remember after being there for just a year or so, we organized this this thing called the Great Awakening, that we were going to print you know, uh, this piece that was talking about who Jesus was and how their lives could be transformed and what salvation was. And, and we were going to get into every 54449 and that, that whole zip code, which was in and outside of our little town. And so we geared up and we, put, we bought you know, several of the billboards. There weren't very many in Marshfield, but we bought several of them and put up the, the uh, Great Awakening is coming. You know, spring of whatever year it was, in 1984, 83, or whatever it was. The Great Awakening's coming. You know, we thought we'd just create anticipation. And so we, we put together, we put together these pamphlets. They were huge, eight by 11, you know, six pages or four pages anyway. And we just brought them, we set them on the altar. We thought we'd just leave them on the altar for weeks and just soak up the glory. And, um, and then we packed them together and we sent them. And I remember thinking, man, this is it. You know, it, we, I thought for sure we could win all of Marshfield within a year or two. It's only 18,000 people, man, let's do this. Then I'm going to go to another city for God. You know, we've got, anyway, let's, let's do our job, right? And, uh, and, and so we sent that thing out. We had a 24-hour hotline and we had people praying 24 hours a day for two weeks after we sent that out. Just had a handful of responses, six or seven. And I remember thinking, oh, man, about wearing myself out and, and um, uh, spending all of our money <laughs> to, to reach the world, and it wasn't working. And then I remembered something that had happened in Bible school. We were in Bible school here in Tulsa. And uh, this particular day was the day that Gil and I were trying to get out of here because we were going back for Thanksgiving break to her hometown of St. Louis. And so... I always sat in the front in the, in the rows because I didn't want to be distracted. I really wanted to listen to the teachers. This particular hour, I'm sitting at the back because I wanted to beat all the students out the door and get in the car and get out of here. And she was waiting for me. And so I had all my stuff. And, and as he was closing the class down, I got my stuff together. I got in my hand. I like, I'm bolting out of here to beat everybody else in love. But, um, uh, and just as I was picking myself up, I'm about ready to head out the door. I moved down about three seats. And the guy said, oh, why don't we pray for you? Because you guys are... You know, you guys are traveling. I said, let me pray for you. So I said, okay. So I stood back there, and he started to pray. And the moment he started to pray, and I closed my eyes, bam, I went into some kind of place, some kind of space, um, like a trance or something. And I felt God's hand on me. And just for about an hour, I stood there weeping, hanging out, and four other, three other students stayed there with me. 
And as, we were pray- as, as that moment was happening, I started seeing some things. I said, this is a crazy story. I get it. I started seeing some things. And what I was seeing inside myself or in this moment, people around me started describing and saying, you see that? And described it to me. It was a very interesting moment. And at the climax of that thing, one of the ladies that was in the room, she turned to me and she said, listen, the church that you build, it will not grow because you preach the truth. It will grow because you've learned to love. And somewhere in that moment when I was in Marshfield, I stopped and I said, wait a minute. This isn't about just talking to people and trying to convince them of stuff. This is about learning to care for people and love people. And I figured out that the way we're going to reach our whole time with the turn of this whole town with the gospel was not so much about beating people with the truth, but really about us learning to love people. So after trying the aggressive evangelism approach, I really came to believe that we do way more for the kingdom of God by loving people by name within the context of our lives, rather than by programs and more money. So we started telling people, listen, let's just do this. Let's just start living really well. Let's forgive people when they're mean to us. Let's celebrate them. Let's walk into the jobs that we have and think, there you are, and, and, and start appreciating them, and, and actually start working not for money, but working as our hearts unto the Lord, and not be whiners and complainers, and backbiters, let's be generous people. And, and what started happening was we started filling up that little church in that little town. The largest evangelical church was about 100 people. Ours grew to about six or 700 people. And when you go around and talk to people, it was so interesting because I, I would run, I remember the two favorite stories that I have. One gal was a nurse. Our town was St. Joseph's. It was a big hospital, St. Joseph's. And our, there was a big clinic there. I mean, out of a town of 18,000 people, there were over 400 doctors, specialists that were there in this huge uh, clinic. So it was a big medical community, Marshfield Clinic. And um, um, so anyway, this, a lot of our people that, worked, uh, that came to the church were, worked at the clinic and worked at the hospital. Well, this particular nurse I had never met, I came up to her and asked her, you know, hey, how are you? Introduced myself. And I said, tell me your story. How'd you end up here? And she said, well, you know, Catherine. Catherine was a nurse in our, in our context. I said, yeah. She said, well... I work with her at St. Joe's, and she said, there's this one particular head nurse that none of us like. I mean, literally, none of us like her. And they put us in teams. So every month, they reorganize the teams, and nobody ever volunteers to work with this lady. She said, but I noticed that Catherine always worked with her. So I thought they were just good friends. And so I was working one month on that team, and I saw Catherine being treated as meanly as anyone else is being treated, and yet she was responding in kindness. And it seemed like she genuinely liked this lady. So I asked her, are you guys like old friends? And Catherine chuckles and no. She goes, well, why in the world are you so nice to her? And Catherine goes, well, she said, I kind of approach my job kind of like, strange to sound, almost like a prayer that I give myself. And I just feel like I want to bring light where there's maybe some darkness or bring, you know, hope where there's maybe something that isn't quite right. She goes, where do you go to church? <laughs> and so she said, I'm here because I want to be like Catherine. Oh, how wonderful. One of my other favorite stories is this couple, Steve and Ellen, and they uh, um, married for maybe 10 or 15 years when this story happened. But they, I ran into this gal, Julie, I think her name was, who was a hairdresser about 30 miles away, and she'd been coming to church for a while, six months or something. And so I went up and talked to her. I said, well, you know, how did you end up here? And she said, you know, I'm hoping when I ask people like this, they would say things like, you're amazing preaching. 
I didn't hardly ever hear that. But anyway, the point is, <laughs> note to self. But anyway, the point is, is that uh, I said, how did you end up here? And she said, well, you know Stephen Ellen? I said, yeah. She, Ellen, I do her hair, my hairdresser. I said, okay. She said, they first came, or when I, when I was doing her hair one time, about eight months ago, whatever it was, six or eight months ago, she said, uh, she was in the chair, and the two of them were talking. He had come with her, and they were just talking and joking and laughing and really enjoying one another. And she said, actually, I had been married for about a year, and my marriage was in the tank. I mean, it was horrible. We were talking divorce, and I was looking at them sort of envious of their relationship, thinking they must have just gotten married or something. So I asked them, I said, are you guys newlyweds? <laughs> they both laughed and said, no, we've been married for 10 years, had three kids, you know. She goes, she just stopped, and she said, how do you do this? How do you do what? How, how are you, like, so in love? They both, this wasn't a response they just had in the pocket. They just, they said, well, you know, we think marriage is important. We, we actually feel like it's a, like a, like a, like a sacrament, like, a, like, like it's something that you do as unto God and that there's something more here that matters. She said, where do you go to church? <laughs> Ended up at our church. Story, story, story of lives being touched one-on-one name by name, not just numbers because we're trying to reach the whole world in a day. I've become convinced over the years, maybe it's because we were in rural America, that going for the numbers doesn't please God's heart. Now, I think that mass evangelism sometimes is what you have to do. I mean, you know, short-term missions, sometimes you're in situations you can't do it. But I think, I think winning people by name rather than by number, by the presence of Christians who are living holy lives before those that they know is really what we should be doing for people to touch people's lives. Sadly, when most evangelicals and charismatics think about being holy or about being different, they're often just weird. I mean, instead of living well and respectfully sharing with people who ask them about their lives, they're just all up in people's faces, proselytizing. They often show no respect for the beliefs or the experiences of other people. And they put their judgments on parade in a kind of one-up fashion around other people. And they are aggressive against what they believe is sinful and think, we're being Christians because we... That's filthy! That's filthy! Right? <laughs> Lord, help me. Help me, Lord. Say it, help him, Lord. Anyway, I'm just Read the Gospels. I mean, do you ever see Jesus all up in people's grills? I mean, the, the only people he seems to be up in their grill is, are the people that are so holy there than thouish. I mean, he does call people to step out of sin because, he, because on some level he knows and he communicates to us that when we sin, we're less than human. There's something that pales in us. But he never calls people out of sin until he first was willing to align himself in love with them and care for them. In a way that, that when, when, when people would look at him, I mean, it, it just seemed that on some level, I mean, whether it was the leper walking around that everybody thought was filthy and nobody touched. You don't touch a leper. You, don't, you, you, you just don't. And yet Jesus reached out and touched them. Or the prostitute that comes to Jesus and all of the normal people we're hanging at the table. The religious people are hanging at the table. And here comes this prostitute in the room. You know, the first question's got to be, how does Jesus even know her? <laughs> and why is she crying? Didn't he pay her? <laughs> so you have the advantage of knowing the these stories. What would you have thought? If there was a prostitute that hung around here on the corner all the time, 
And all of a sudden, this Sunday morning, he came in, and he's at Pastor Brent's feet crying. (laughs) This is what I want to do. What are you doing? What are you doing? But Jesus just let her cry, and her tears fell on his feet. And she washed his feet with her tears, and she wiped his feet off with her hair. All of the people sitting around, you know what they thought? He must not be, he must not be a prophet. <laughs> no prophet would have, if he was a prophet, he'd have the discernment to know what kind of person she was. And yet Jesus, without rebuking her, without telling her that she's got to do this and stop doing that, he just let her weep. See, Jesus called people to holiness to be sure, but not without being willing to be aligned with them in a way that made him look less in the eyes of some others. I say this with sadness, but many of the evangelicals and charismatics that I've pastored over the last 40 years are more odd and mean than holy. More like Pharisees than followers of Jesus. Jesus said about the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Woe to you, teachers of the law, the truth. And Pharisees, you hypocrites, you travel over the land to win a single convert. I mean, you are all about winning people. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as you are. So what is true holiness? Glad you asked. (laughs) Holiness is simply about being like God in situations. Acting like God would act based on what we know about Jesus and what we know from the scriptures. It's about treasuring values that Jesus treasured. It's about, and about the ones that are treasured in sacred texts. Let me give you a couple examples. It's like holiness embraces the value of fearing the Lord. The fear of the Lord, all it really is is seeing things from God's perspective. Most of us get fearing people. Like, you know, somebody that we think is important, we kind of get freaked out. That Most people hate being, in pu- being public speaking. You know why they hate being in front of people? Because they can't, they keep thinking about what they look like in front of them. Uh, we do, I've been doing weddings for 40 years, and one of the questions that the groomsmen usually, often ask, uh, unlike the, bri- the bridegrooms or the bridesmaids because they carry flowers and stuff, the groomsmen will sometimes ask, what do I do with these? <laughs> They're standing in front of all these people and they have these. And they, I, in, the, in my mind, I think they think they're this big or something. They're just, what do I do with these? Because they, they don't know what to do with them. And they see themselves through the eyes of these people. They don't want to look stupid. So what do I do with these? All of us get the fear of men. The fear of God is about seeing yourself through his eyes. And when you do, there's something really amazing that happens because God really loves you. And he's for you. And he forgives us. And he believes in us and he hopes in us. And so when you start looking at your life or the circumstances that you face through God's perspective, it changes how you act. There's a beautiful text in Isaiah that talks about the coming Savior who we know to be Jesus and he's called the branch. Listen to what it says. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, from David. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. And watch. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom, 
understanding, counsel, might. The spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And it says, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. Such an interesting phrase. Delight in the fear of the Lord in Hebrew basically translates into he will smell God. It's kind of the notion of uh, like a, uh, some kind of a, uh, an animal that can sniff things and smell things that we can't smell, like a bloodhound or something, can pick up on a scent that, we, that humans can't pick up. That somehow Jesus, because the Spirit of God was on him, and the people that the Spirit of God who is on will begin to discern where God is and what he's saying and be more interested in that than the circumstances they're in. And so it says, he will delight in the fear of the Lord and because he is sort of picking up God's scent, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes. He will not decide by what he hears with his ears. Why? Because he's picking up on what God is doing. We see Jesus doing this by not reacting to people in circumstances. That oftentimes he's being reflective. I mean, even in famous stories where, like when they asked him, is it right to pay Caesar taxes or not? And they're trying to catch him, the scripture says. And then it says that he sees through their duplicity. So in the text, there's this kind of sense of pause. Like he's trying to sniff out the father. What is the father saying in response to this? And he brilliantly replies, Jesus does, show me a Darius. And they give it to him. They said, whose inscription is on it? And then he says, render to Caesar what Caesar's render to God what God's. See, this kind of notion of knowing what to do, saying something surprising, something that's wise, doesn't just come from reacting to things. It comes from learning the fear of the Lord, which helps us begin to see what we should do or what God would do. The woman caught in the act of adultery. They bring her in front of him. The, the, the place is charged. They're spouting the truth. We need to stone her. The Bible says in this, we should stone her. What do you say? So Jesus is faced with the crowd's rejection of this person with the next step that's the only righteous step to stone her to death. But instead of reacting, he, he bows, starts writing on the ground. You know what I think he was doing? Where are you, Father? Where are you? I'm not going to react. I'm going to respond in fear, not of the circumstance of the people, but in fear of you. I think this is holiness. It's, Jesus said you'll be slapped on the face, but instead of responding from the slap, from the sting, from the pain, from the unholiness, he said what? Turn the other cheek. What if that's code for look to God? Don't react to what's going on. Don't respond to your feelings. Look to what God is saying. Turn to another dimension. Turn to what he's doing. There's a text in Proverbs 15 that says, the fear of the Lord teaches a person wisdom, which means you know what to do, and humility that comes before honor. You walk in the fear of the Lord, you'll be humble, you'll have honor, and you'll look like God. You're like God to Pharaoh. Holy people also have a high view of Scripture. I love the Bible. I know there's been attacks on it. I know that it's an ancient book that speaks out of a kind of view that's ancient. I mean, in some ways, as you read chapters of Genesis and throughout the Bible, you get the feeling that they saw the world as a flat world. And it isn't a flat world. They saw it that way only because that was their view. And they talk about the four corners of the earth. There's lots of things that, that when you read it is very human and in some ways limited. But that doesn't mean God's not smacking it, peekabooing, <laughs> speaking. 
reaching out to our lives. I love the B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. <laughs> Second Timothy says, all scripture is God-breathed. <laughs> I love that. You know, I love that because I think when you're close enough to someone to feel their breath, you're really close to them. Right? I love when we had babies, one of the most fun things in the world was having those babies so close you could feel their little <laughs> little breathes <laughs> and be close and feel their head or, or being in love with a person that you've given your life to. One of the I'm a cuddler. <laughs> I love feeling Gail's breath on me. Things are together. And and when when we pick up the scriptures, it's like we're cuddling with God. It's like we're just getting up on his and going, okay, breathe. <laughs> and we experience an intimacy that you don't experience anywhere else. It's his word. It's God-breathed, and it's profitable. It, it's useful for teaching. I don't like this part so much. Rebuking, correcting, training in rightness. Living right. So that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for good. We're supposed to good the world, which overcomes evil in the world. It brings beauty and justice. The scriptures help us think think rightly about all kinds of things that are critical for holiness. We could talk about all kinds of them. To live in a way that reflects how God would live if he were in our shoes. But I just want, as we close today, I I want to talk about three fairly uncomfortable things addressed in sacred text. Um, I should be able to make at least one person mad here. Because I think it would be unfortunate if sanctuary didn't lose at least one person every time I preached. (laughs) It is my ministry. So, number one, money. (laughs) Scripture instructs us repeatedly that holy people are not greedy. Material possessions and the style of living that you have, these are things that you should wrestle with and not just assume you're okay. How you relate to things, how important things are to you, ought to bother you. It ought to be one of those things that you pray about you, or you're honest about how quickly you run to possess things or, or, or how you, what your style of living is. If you're living within a way that makes sense for the calling that you have in your life, it, it should be a bothersome place that you comp- repeatedly come to. Not only that, but I I think that people of God, we have to remember that they have always historically been open-handedly generous and always willing to share. Are you? You should at least, according to Scripture and the story we're part of throughout all of church history, at least a tithing person. Tithe is 10% of your income. The only problem with that is you get the feeling from Jesus that tithing isn't nearly enough. But certainly tithing is part of the story. Tithing declares two things, that God is my source, God is my strength, and it also is a thanksgiving to God for that. And I'll be honest with you, it messes with you. Well, let me say this first. 
It's one of the things that all of us do who are followers of Christ, resulting from this kind of sense that we equally sacrifice. We don't equally give the same things because some of us make more money than others do. So we actually give more because 10% of $100 is you know, less than 10% of $10,000, right? And so even though we not give all the same amounts, we all give the same kind of sacrificial gift. We, we just do this is what the scripture calls. We just do it no matter... The circumstance, no matter how you feel, we just do it. Now, now this is not, nothing to be said to condemn anyone, but I'm telling you, at some point, I think it's really precious to commit to being a tither. Gail and I, over these years since we were kids, we committed uh, that we will tithe all of our lives, and we have. Times that it was easy, times not so. There were times that I would write out the tithe check, both of us would look at it, and we'd think, golly, Lord, this is the last thing we want to do for you. Because the truth is, we need it more than you do. And I, it would be painful. I wouldn't think, you know, I'd write it out and i think, golly, this is not really joyful right now. I mean, I'm, it just basically is my future. <laughs> I'm giving away my heating bill right here. You know, it would freak me out. And so when we would freak out about it, we wouldn't give it right away. We'd just fold it up, write the check out, fold it up, and I'd carry it around in my pocket. Sometimes for a couple of weeks. And every time I reached in my pocket, I'd bump into it. And I, by the time I gave it, sometimes it was all ratty. But I would give it when we knew with confidence that this was an expression of our faith in God, our trust in him. And I'll tell you what, tithing to us is precious. We don't beat people with it. We hardly talk about it here because a lot of people have been abused by this thing. You know, they, they, they think of giving in the church and just the old abuse, all they want is your money, all that kind of stuff. We're not like that. But you know, I'll tell you, it, it doesn't eliminate the principle just because somebody's abused it. Amen. And we would give it. And it is precious to us. It's one of the ways that we know God has molded our hearts. It's one of the ways that we know that God has protected us in things. I don't know why we know that. It's one of the reasons why when things change in our lives, we have a confidence that's going to be okay. And we can have joy. What is joy? The expectation something good's going to happen. And, and somehow by giving that consistent thing, we go, God, we're, just, we're not earning it. We're not forcing it. It's not a trick. But it is precious to us. Let me say this. Um, tithing isn't a legalism. You don't have to tithe. You don't have to pray. You don't have to do anything. You can go to hell if you want. <laughs> Just go to hell. That felt good. So what'd you preach on this week? Told people to go to hell? <laughs> That's a tweet right there, baby. <laughs> It's not a legalism. In fact, it starts early. Abraham, 400 years before the law, ties all that he has to Melchizedek in a declaration that God is his source. You go even back further to the first family where Cain and Abel appear. That whole thing that happened between Cain and Abel was over first fruits of giving to God. First fruits are tithes. So let me say this as kindly as I can. Biblically, from the vantage point of all Christians who have come before you and me, you have no justification for not tithing. At best, when you don't tithe, it's a sign of ignorance. At worst, it's a sign of rebellion, sloth, or greed. It's a simple divine mandate 
Tithing is not money you get to designate to special projects that you particularly love. That's why the Bible talks about tithes and offerings and almsgiving. You get to tithe as a lump to the community that you participate in. That's the idea. It hurts the community in which you belong when you don't. And the worst offenders on this are those of you that are 20 to 30s, somethings. I don't know why that's true. If, if you just have a sense that you feel entitled to whatever is there. I don't know if you think that the church is the man and you want to stick it to the man. I have no idea what the reasoning is. I do admit again that this tithing thing has been abused, but again, that does not make the principle wrong. And in case you don't know it, this is how the world works. Sanctuary exists because of the tithers. The doors are open week in and week out. We get to sing, we get to hear preaching because of the tithers. But less than 50% of our attendees tithe. And a majority of those are over 40. I'm not mad at you. God is not mad at you. You're not going to be judged for it. We will love you anyway. But I'll be honest with you. It's bewildering to me. I honestly just don't get it. So methinks some of you need to rethink this. Uncomfortable subject number two. <laughs> Sex. Let me say it as bluntly as I can. Biblically speaking, sex isn't something you do everywhere with anyone. It is to be expressed in the context of a committed monogamous marriage. It isn't supposed to be just a personal experience for self-satisfaction. Sex is to be a servant to your spouse, not a demand for self-fulfillment and never a manipulation. Nor is it a solo project. You're such understanding people. <laughs> it's space where loving married people can attend to each other's sexual needs and sexual wants. It is a place to be fun. But it's never a place to express lust. There is a difference between lust and love. If you don't know that difference, Google it. <laughs> when you think of your sexual activity, this simple filtering will make it holy. Uncomfortable subject number three. Power. I brought, I, I, I drew something. Some of you are going to wonder why I didn't go into art when you see this because it is amazing. It is a triangle, okay? Now, power in the standard of the culture in which we live, and it has been for a long time, dog eat dog. It's about you being on the bottom here 
And the way to get up to the top is by stepping on people. And the better you are at it, the wittier you are at it, the more conniving you are at it, you get to the top. That's the way it works. And most of us thrown into jobs, thrown into the culture, we tend to think, I go to church, I love the Lord, but really, this is the way the world works. I got to stick it to that guy. I got to get on top. Jesus comes along and says, be holy. And what he means with power is this. He flips it. And he basically says, if you really want to have power, what you need to do is outserve the person around you. And we keep going under and under and under and under. The person that goes under the most is the person that's the greatest. The Greek word is hupotasso, H-U-P-U-T-A-S-S-O. And what it means is to rank yourself under for the purpose of lifting. It's like if I hupotasso this pulpit thingy, this is what I do. I'm ranking myself under it for the purpose of lifting it. That's how we use power in the world as managers, as husbands, as wives, as friends, as leaders, as owners. We should always look like servants. This is holiness. This this is the kind of stuff that makes up a holy life. Not how obnoxious you are with your opinions about what is right and what is wrong and about the sins that other people commit. That's not holiness. Holy people become a voice for God precisely because they're different. You rubberneck people, they, what? Where'd that come from? Let me give you this last text. This is Revelations 3. In fact, stand with me as I read this to you. Revelations 3, this is Jesus. I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. When I was in high school, I used to hear this preached as a, you know, going to camps, little camps that we go to, youth camps. And the evangelist that was there would usually preach from a text like this and say, you know, Jesus would rather have you be hot for God, on fire for God, or have you just hate him and be cold in your heart. It's better to be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, there's an extra kind of disgust he has for you. And he will spit you out of his mouth right into the fires of hell. (laughs) So you had to be hot, 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 hot for Christ, you know. I'll never forget... One day I was reading this and it just hit me. I don't think he's talking about that. I think what he's talking about, if you look at the text, Jesus is talking about people that he's using in the world, that he has in his mouth as a voice. That the people that would speak prophetically for him, that when they opened their mouths, they were speaking the words of Christ and somehow God was speaking to the world through them, that they had to be either hot or cold about things. Hot or cold, what is that? It means different. If I brought a real hot glass of water or a cup of water and I brought a cold cup of water here, they're hot and cold precisely because they're different than what's here. But if we just leave the hot cup of water for a long, long time, it loses its hotness and eventually starts representing what's around it. If we make the cold water and it loses its coldness, it eventually starts representing the temperature that's around it. When it represents the temperature that's around it, what do we call it? Lukewarm. Who do you represent? See, the church needs to be hot on some things, like forgiving people, being gracious to people, respecting people, loving people. We need to be cold on some things, like judging people, being mean-spirited to people, 
trying to one-up people. We need to be cold on some things, hot on some things. And if we dare to be different, we'll be in his mouth. And he can speak through us in the world that's around us. Holiness will get the attention of those who live around us. A holy person becomes a mouth for God, a voice for God. Let's pray. Father, we would love to be a holy people for you. Help us to long to be a prophetic people in this city, in our homes, on our jobs, in our friendships, in our encounters with people. Help us, God. Long to be your voice, to carry your voice. And help us let the scriptures both encourage us confront us, and correct us. Have your will in us, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary, or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.